you've occupied us over the last little while with some wonderful things about the Lord Jesus, some important things about him. We've also been very conscious of important facts about ourselves, sin within us, potential to commit sins, the possibility of being separated in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our joys from the enjoyment of the fellowship that you want to have with us. Thank you that it's your desire and the desire of the Lord Jesus to have us near you and to have us near him. Just ask now for special help, opening the the scriptures to see some more features of the greatness of the Lord Jesus. Help us to be set free from the things that drag us downwards so that we might be just lifted up in our spirits to be engaged with his greatness and with what he wants for us in connection with you, yourself. So, Father, we ask for real help, special help this morning. Ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 We're going to turn to Matthew 14 to start with. gracious to us in the way that in order to um, engage us with things that are invisible, things that are beyond the realm of touch and taste and sight, he first, usually in scripture, gives to us illustrations in things that are much more tangible. I think we notice that yesterday in connection with thinking of the Lord Jesus as advocate and as priest to see that those two activities are part of intercession and we saw the illustration of intercession with Moses going up the mountain, Aaron and her holding up his arms while he was seated in that exalted position. So we saw that that was an illustration of of something that we can't see of the Lord Jesus in his service towards us in heaven. Well, we're starting here in in Matthew 14 in the same way. I'll read from verse 13. And Jesus, having heard it, having heard of what happened to John the Baptist, went away thence by ship to a desert place apart. And the crowds, having heard of it, followed him on foot from the cities. And going out, he saw a great crowd and was moved with compassion about them and healed their infirm. But when even was come, his disciples came to him saying, The place is desert and much of the daytime already gone by. Dismiss the crowds that they may go into the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They have no need to go. Give ye them to eat. But they say to him, We have not here save five loaves and two fishes. 
And he said, bring them here to me. And having commanded the crowds to recline upon the grass, having taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven and blessed. And having broken the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was over and above of fragments, twelve hand baskets full. But those that had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. And immediately he compelled the disciples to go on board ship, and to go on before him to the other side, until he should have dismissed the crowds. And having dismissed the crowds, he went up into the mountain apart to pray. And when even was come, he was alone there, but the ship was already in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. But in the fourth watch of the night, he went off to them, walking on the sea, and the disciples, seeing him walking on the sea, were troubled, saying, It is an apparition. But they cried out through fear. But Jesus immediately spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter, answering him, said, Lord, if it be thou, command me to come to thee upon the waters. And he said, Come. And Peter, having descended from the ship, walked upon the waters to go to Jesus. But seeing the wind strong, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. I want to look, just as an introduction in looking at these verses, at three glories of the Lord Jesus, which are associated with his present position at God's right hand. That is, as head, as priest, and as Lord. Now, um, hopefully this will just be a, a quick introduction, and then we're going to move into some more detail, particularly in regard to Jesus as head and Jesus as Lord. We're going to save priesthood for this afternoon's session. Maybe a little bit of an intro to start with. I think this is probably a passage we're we're a little bit familiar with. It it starts in in John 14 with a, a, a scene that is very familiar to us. Familiar to us in the sense that we were talking about this kind of stuff just yesterday. We were talking about matters of sin. We were talking about matters of feeling uncomfortable because of walking through a world that's so opposed to the things of God. And if you look back at the beginning of of chapter 14, we'll see a picture, a picture that is just a picture of this world. Um, It's the occasion of Herod's birthday. There's not many birthday parties mentioned in Scripture and none of them are good. And Herod's birthday, um, the first thing that you find in Herod's birthday is um, he, he brings in this, this young woman all tarted up and, um, and she's there and she's dancing in front of them all. Now, I'm not very good at dancing. <clears throat> now, um, I think we can see fairly clearly in that something rather provocative. And then... Um, you notice in verse 6, she's dancing and they're all watching, all, all these eyes of these men, I suppose. They're all looking at her and, and they're pretty impressed by this. 
And then Herod makes this kind of promise to her, and he says, look, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. And she asks for something that really troubles Herod, but because Herod was um, ashamed to go back on his word, you know, he had a reputation to maintain, he said, I'm going to do it. And in those three things, you've got the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the Apostle John tells us, that that constitutes everything that's in this world. And we were talking yesterday about having to walk through a world where there are things like this, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes and the pride of life, and those things can drag us down and make us feel real discomfort when we think about going into the presence of God. I just don't don't feel good. Well, where we started reading, the Lord, he goes apart from all of that. And he, he says to his disciples, you come apart with me and rest a while. And so now we have a picture of the Lord Jesus apart from this evil system, apart from this evil world. And he's, he's giving us a picture that he can sustain and support those who belong to him apart from this evil world. And what he gives to us is a picture of himself Firstly, as head, secondly, as priest, and thirdly, as Lord. Now, I want to get some nods. Can everyone remember three things, three points? Everyone? Good. I'm I'm glad. I'm not expecting anyone to remember seven points, only three. And so, with each one of these, we've got three points. I'm sorry to sneak that up on you. That means nine, doesn't it? But but still, it's, it's three points. Headship, can you remember these? Preeminence, direction, nourishment. They easy to remember? Preeminence, direction, nourishment. That's the head. Priest, we'll get into detail this evening. Support, sympathy, Salvation. Three S's. I'm going to test. That's a good idea. We'll do some testing later. Lord. Authority. Supremacy. And deity. Okay. Let's have a look at the illustration here. Um, The Lord Jesus has got a huge crowd of people in front of him. He has compassion for them. He wants to provide for them. He wants to feed them. And what we find in this whole picture is that he is preeminent. He does everything. Look at verse 19, for example. He's the one who commands them. He's the one who takes the loaves. He's the one who prays. He's the one who breaks the loaves. He's the one who gives thanks for the loaves. He's the one who gives it to the disciples. Everything is about him. He is the preeminent one. But then the next thing we find, not only preeminence, we find direction. He says um, to the crowds, well, in one place he tells the disciples to, to do this, get them to recline on the grass. Is it here? I can't even remember now. He sits them down in companies of 50 and of 100. He directs. He's the one directing the traffic. And that direction 
when we learn a little bit more about headship, the direction of headship is direction by affection. I think the, the poetic side of that should help us remember it. Direction by affection. Remember this, Ephesians chapter 5. Husband is the head of the wife. And what does the Apostle Paul say to the husbands? Husbands, love your wives. How is the husband the head of the wife? By loving his wife. The old-fashioned idea of the husband being the Lord, the husband being the boss, the husband saying, get in the kitchen, woman. That's a completely non-biblical idea. The husband as head of the wife is leading by affection. Husbands, love your wives. And this affectionate direction given by the Lord Jesus here is an indication of his headship. He's not asking them to do something that's, that's bad for them. He's not asking them to do something that's uncomfortable. Recline on the grass and just wait there. He's directing. And then the, the third thing with headship, nourishment. The Lord Jesus is going to provide nourishment for everybody there. But how is he going to do it? Take notice of what he says to the disciples. You give them to eat. Who gave the 5,000 men plus women and children bread and fish to eat? Who did it? It was the disciples, wasn't it? But how did they do it? He gave it to them. He didn't, he didn't go and give to the 5,000 plus, let's say 15,000 at least. He didn't go and give it to them himself. He gave it to them through the means of his disciples. He's providing nourishment to the people, but he's doing it through his disciples. And this is exactly what we find with the headship of Christ as it's presented to us in Colossians. That as the head, he provides nourishment through the members. He, he actually speaks of us in Colossians not as being members like arms and legs. He speaks of us as being joints. He talks about it as the nourishment being passed through by every joint of supply. And that is really, really encouraging. Because as Christians... What's a joint? A joint is a... Um, maybe Pete's going to correct me later, medically... But it's a connecting point between the different parts, isn't it? When, when, when you get old, like me, and, and you start to get aches and pains in your joints or get arthritis, it's, um, it's those connecting points that are really troubling you. But in, in Colossians, the joints are called joints of supply. And that means that every point of connection between one believer and another is a means by which the head is providing nourishment to the members of his body. What a wonderful privilege we have and a responsibility too to be in touch with the head so that we can be used by him just like he's using the disciples here when he said, you give them to eat. They gave them to eat, but he gave them to eat, but they gave them to eat because he chose to use them. He tells them, you're going to give them to eat. They say, whoa, whoa, we, we can't do that. And we do that, don't we? The Lord tells us to, to, to do something, to serve him in some way, and we shrink back and we think, well, we can't do that. Exactly, we can't. But we have to. 
because he tells us to. Because as the head, he directs us to. And when he directs us to, he supplies us with everything we need in order to do that. That's the head. Preeminence, direction by affection and nourishment. Now, next, the head, he's finished that part of his service and he sends the disciples away on a ship out to the sea. And notice what he does. He does just what Moses did. He goes up on a mountain. To do what? To pray for them. This is now, we could say intercession, but I want to focus particularly on priesthood. And as priest, he's there praying for them. But not only does he pray for them. In verse 25, it says, In the fourth watch of the night, he went off to them. He's not going to leave them alone. He's going to go to them and make them feel his company, his companionship. And in doing that, he provides support. Um, Another Bible word for support is help. We're going to study this a bit um, this afternoon, so I won't, won't dwell on that for the moment. He provides support through his companionship. And then the second thing, verse 27... um, They're afraid, and he says to them, take courage, it is I. In that, he's demonstrating his sympathy. He sees the fear that they have, and he shows to them that he feels for them in that fear, he feels with them in that fear, and he he manifests himself to them. That's his sympathy. But then, lastly, um, when he he comes to them in the ship, finally, um, everything's calm. And everything's um, safe. That's salvation. He, by being with them, by acting towards them in this way, all of the difficulties have become calmed and have passed. There's salvation. So, support, sympathy, salvation. We're going to focus on that later. And then lastly, Lord. Remember the three? Authority. Supremacy, deity. Authority, verse 28, Peter says, which word? Lord. Lord, if, it, if it's really you, do it in a way that I know it's really you. How? Command. Command me to come. He has authority. He can command. That's the Lord. But then... Secondly, verse 32. I've gone up into the ship. The wind fell. He is supreme. He's Lord of all. He is in control of absolutely everything. This is his supremacy. And then lastly, verse 33. When the Apostle Peter saw everything that had taken place, he says, truly thou art God's son. The Son of God is God himself. He recognises that he is the true God. So lordship involves supremacy, authority, and the fact that he is God. (coughs) If we just compare that for a moment with headship, headship involves that he is man. Lordship involves that he is God. And there's going to come a day in the future when every knee will bow 
And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because the Jews, when he came the first time, they said, how is this possible that a man could be the son of God? This is impossible. A man can't be the son of God. He's a man. He's the son of Joseph. He's the son of Mary. We know his brothers and sisters. If anyone who's a man says that he's God, he must be blaspheming. We have to get rid of him because he's not telling the truth. But in a future day, they'll look to him and they'll say, yes, he is God after all. Not only the Jews, but every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. That he is the true God. True and living God. I was going to say a little bit more about priesthood, but um, if you um, use your um, the app on your phone and search the epistle to the Hebrews for the word priest, let's see if I've counted them, there are at least 14 different ways the Lord Jesus is described as being priest in Hebrews. It is a glory that is just so... I don't know the word for it. I can't, I can't pick a word that's, that's high enough. It's a glory that's just so immense that the, the apostle in writing to the Hebrews, when he talks about the Lord as priest, he, he, he almost runs out of words to describe him as being priest. He's a great priest. He's a high priest. He's a great high priest. He's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He's, he's a priest who sympathizes. He's, over and over again, he's using the word priest um, but adding words to that to describe the greatness of the Lord Jesus as priest. And, and um, when, when we touch on this this afternoon, I hope we'll get a deep impression in our souls about his greatness. But um, I've mentioned three things in reference to his priesthood. Support, sympathy, salvation. Everyone's remember that. Good. Their functions of his priesthood downwards towards us in our need, just like in that first hymn that we sang, our great high priest is sitting at God's right hand above. He's looking down and he sees the troubles we're going through. He knows how to support us. He knows how to sympathize with us. He knows how to save us out of difficulties. And these things all relate to what we're doing down here. But there's a second part of his priesthood And this is what I really want to get to before we finish this afternoon. And that is, he's functioning in the presence of God upwards. Upwards towards his God and Father in a service of worship that he wants us to join in together with him. That's all that he's doing as priest downwards to help us is in view of drawing us near to him causing us to have, like we had last night, part with him, to join with him in that praise and worship towards his God and Father. And he's called um, in his activity as doing this, the minister of the sanctuary. I want to mention that now because this is where where we want to lead to. We want to get to this afternoon. Um, Turn to Acts 2 just for a moment.
verse 36, Peter, preaching for the first time ever, he says in his preaching, Let the whole house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him, this Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Remember that we're focusing on his glories at God's right hand. There is a sense in which when he was living as a man on earth, Jesus is Lord. There is a sense in which as a man living on earth, Jesus was the Christ. But that's not what we're focusing on this weekend. We're focusing on what Peter is telling us here, that as the one raised from the dead, as the one seated at God's right hand, God has made him Lord and Christ. Of course, he was the one who had authority when he was a man on earth, but even more so in his present position of glory. And very conscious that we haven't got time to look them up. I'm just going to tell you some references. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he's called, 2 verse 8, he's called the Lord of glory. 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, he's called the Lord of peace. Acts 10, 36, he's called the Lord of all things. Then in Romans chapter 10, in a couple of verses, he's called the Lord of all, all people. 1 Timothy 6 and a couple of other places in Scripture, he's called the Lord of Lords. Romans 12, verse 11, he's called the Lord. Acts 20 and lots of other places, he's called our Lord. And in one place in Scripture, in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul calls him my Lord. There's at least eight different ways he's referred to as Lord in his present place of glory. And, and I, I guess one thing for all of us, we, we love to think of him as being the Lord. He's the Lord of all. He's the Lord of all things. But perhaps even more precious to be able to say he's our Lord. And I'm sure for all of us, what we would all desire is that in our individual lives, each one of us might be able to say, He is my Lord. I know Him personally. I know that personally He is supreme. I know personally He has authority over me. And I know Him personally as the one who is the true God, the true and living God. Just a little outline concerning Him as Lord. But... Peter also said he's been made both Lord and Christ. And in this, we need to carefully understand things because I've heard people say Christ just means, it's just the Greek word that means the same as the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus was the promised Messiah to Israel and Christ just simply means he's the Messiah. And if you do a little word study, um, I, I recommend doing this. I, um, I shouldn't just talk. I should give you some, some pointers on how to, to, to search things out. Grab your app on your smartphone. Has anyone not got a Bible app on their smartphone? 
Anyone? Anyone not? Good. You've all got a Bible app on your smartphone. Make sure with your Bible app to download a translation that gives you access to what's called the Strong's Numbers. That is, a, a guy um, last century or the century before, he, he allocated a number to every Greek word and to every Hebrew word in the Bible. Pretty amazing because what this guy did, say, 200 years ago, is now able to be used with the, the latest modern technology in order to help us search for words digitally in these little devices we hold in the palms of our hands. And he, he had a book this thick full of these numbers. We've got a little thing in the palm of our hands. Make sure to get a translation that has the Strong's numbers attached. And if you want to search for the meaning of a word, don't just look at the English word. Tap on that, tap on the word, tap on the number, and say, search for every occasion of that number, and then diligently and carefully read the verses um, in which those references appear. And when you start doing that, that starts to give a great impression of the true meaning of words in Scripture. You know, in connection with this, this claim that people make. Christ just means Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? How to test it? Open up your app. Find the word Messiah in the Old Testament. Tap on it. Search for all of the references for that Hebrew word. And you know what you're going to find when you find that? It's a word that's not used very often in the Old Testament. Have I got the number? It's about 36 times, if I remember correctly. 40 times, I'm sorry. Four of those 40 refer to Jesus. The rest of the 40, the 36 of them, refer to prophets, to priests, to kings. They've got nothing to do with the Lord Jesus. The Hebrew word Messiah is not a word used exclusively to describe Jesus. It's a word used to describe any position any office given to a man whereby a man was appointed to administer blessing to the people of God. Does that make sense? I'm not going to give you all the references because you can do it yourself. One of them um, that refers to Christ is in Daniel chapter 9. It says, Messiah the Prince. It's one that we know well. Um, I won't tell you the others. But all of the other references are referring to men appointed by God to administer blessings to the people of God. When you come to the New Testament, find the word Christ and search on that, that word appears 507 times in the New Testament. It's not like 40 times Messiah in the Old Testament. It is a big word, it's a common word, it's an important word in the New Testament. And every single time it's referring to the Lord Jesus. Never to any other man. So is Messiah the same as Christ? Absolutely not. Was the Lord Jesus the promised Messiah of Israel? Yes. But is Messiah equal to Christ? No. Christ is a word used exclusively of the Lord Jesus. And it refers to him as the, just like in the Old Testament, as the one appointed by God to be the one to provide blessing to his people. When he came amongst the Jews as a man on earth, 
He came with that claim that he was the one appointed by God to administer blessing amongst them and they rejected him. And what Peter preaches now, God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now at God's right hand, he takes that position or that title or that responsibility, that office of Christ in a completely new way. He takes it as being the head of a body that's connected with him. There is one reference to Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I think it is. Verse 12, which very, very closely associates the members of his body with himself as the one who is the head. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, it says, For even as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of the body, being many, are one body, so also is the Christ. So, the word Christ is used to describe an earthly relationship with his earthly people. But much more importantly, it's used to describe his heavenly relationship with his heavenly people. With those through whom, as head, he's going to act in blessing for men and women. Is it clear? I'm just going to make sure I'm getting some nods around the room. So, big difference between Christ and Messiah. Messiah, a relatively unimportant word in the Old Testament. Christ, a hugely important word in the New Testament. Messiah, an Old Testament word that refers to all kinds of men who are in positions of administering blessing for the people of God. Christ, in the New Testament, exclusively used concerning the Lord Jesus. In the New Testament, Christ, a word which can be applied to his life on earth as a man amongst the Jews, but specially a word to describe his present position of glory as head in connection with his body in order to administer blessing to men and women on this earth. Head. A little bit more in regard to the head. Maybe we should read um, in Colossians 2, the verse that I spoke about just before. from verse 18 in order to set the the context. Paul says, Let no one fraudulently deprive you of your prize, doing his own will in humility and worship of angels, entering into things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by the mind of his flesh, and not holding fast the head from whom all the body, ministered to and united together by the joints and bands, increases with the increase of God. 
maybe in connection with that uh, one verse in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15, Ephesians 4 verse 15, in Colossians he put it in a negative context, here in Ephesians it's in a positive context. He says, but holding the truth in love, we may grow up to him in all things who is the head, the Christ. Notice that, the Christ is the head. From whom the whole body, fitted together and connected by every joint of supply, according to the working in its measure of each one part, works for itself the increase of the body, to its self-building up in love. Isn't this wonderful? The Christ is the head. The head has a body. The body has members. The members have joints and connecting points. The head is going to provide nourishment to the body. And that nourishment comes through each one part. Everyone. Did you notice that in in Ephesians 4 verse 18? Every joint of supply. Every single one. And it goes on to say, every single one working in its measure. Now you might say, I'd be sitting there and thinking, well, I don't know much about the Bible. I'm just a, a new Christian. I haven't been studying my Bible very much. I don't, I don't feel very useful as a Christian. But the Apostle Paul is saying, because you're connected with the head, and because you're connected with other members of the body, you are one of, one of these all. No one's excluded from this. You say, my measure is not very great. And Paul says, well, that doesn't matter, because each part works according to its measure. Our head never expects us to function um, any greater than the measure that we have. We don't have to pretend to be what we're not. But we do have an obligation to be what we are. Whatever he has made us, whatever ability he has given us, whatever we learn from him, whatever we receive from him, we have a responsibility to make use of that, to make use of that for the benefit of one another. No one is left out. No one is too weak or feeble or nothing or useless or any of those sorts of things. And certainly, no one is too important. Because the first thing we learn about the head is that he is preeminent. Just um, just a couple of weeks ago, I had somebody came along to the meeting hall um, back in Baldwin where we, we go regularly and he came along and said um, are you the priest here? I said no, no I'm, I'm not going to. He said, well, who is? Who's, who's the, um, the chief priest here? There isn't one. And we have to be very very careful that we, none of us ever tries to take a place of preeminence or appears even to take a place of preeminence because who's the head? 
Who has the preeminence? It's Christ. And you know, we, we do live in a system of things that has developed where organised Christianity has organised itself into denominations and denominations have organised themselves in such a way as that there is always a man who leads. You look at the notice board of chapels and cathedrals and things and what do you find on the notice board? First thing on there, who's the reverend or the pastor or the minister? Our head doesn't tolerate those sorts of things. Our head tells us that every joint of supply is important. No man is to be preeminent. And no one is insufficient. No one's, no one's too great and no one's insufficient. We all have a role and a role to play together. Now there's, some, there's at least seven different ways the Lord Jesus is spoken of as head in Scripture. And I've given this list, this before, some of you know it already. If, if you haven't, worth writing down and worth studying. In Psalm 18, verse 43, he's called the head of the nations. In the coming day, the Lord Jesus is going to, to reign over this world and everyone will see that he is preeminent and every one of the, the nations of this world will acknowledge that he is the one who is preeminent, he's the one who is directing, he's the one who directs by affection, he's the one who provides nourishment. In Psalm 118, verse 22, he's called the head of the corner. It says there was a stone that the builders rejected, that stone has become the head of the corner. You know, there's an interesting Jewish tradition that when they were building the temple, um, they well, had all these big stones, they're building away with the big stones, and they get to this, this most important stone up in the corner, and they're looking around, and there's no stone there. And then someone comes up from the, the, the valley, I think the valley of Hinnom is the suggestion, as we've found this, this stone that's been chucked away, it didn't seem to fit anywhere. And, and they brought it and they put it in and that was the, the, the capstone that just made the whole building all fit together. Now, I'm, I'm not sure whether that's true or not, whether it's simply Jewish tradition. But nevertheless, it's a nice illustration of what Psalm 118 verse 22 speaks about. The Lord Jesus was the stone that men said, we're not interested in him. We don't want him. He doesn't fit in our structure. We've got our own thing going on here. We've, we've built our, um, our synagogues and we've built our religious system and we don't want him. He does, he's not part of that. And even in the religious systems of this world, the name Christ is acknowledged, but um, he doesn't really fit as part of that. We've got our head. We've, we've got our minister. We've got our reverend. We've got our whatever. But the one who should take the preeminent place is the one really who is often discarded. And that's Christ, the head. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he's called the head of every man. And in 1 Corinthians 11, in that first part, there's a really important section of Scripture for our practical behaviour as Christian men and Christian women. Now, um, I would suspect that not everybody has studied that passage of Scripture carefully, but it's a really important passage to study. Because it shows that 
God has an order of headship. And in that order of headship, it goes like this. God, Christ, man, woman. In Christian circle, God has an order. It's not to say that women are any less than men, any more than Christ is any less than God, because we know Christ is God. There's nothing about inferiority or superiority or anything like that. It's simply that there is an order that God has established. And in connection with that established order, the Apostle Paul goes on to teach that when a man comes into the presence of God to pray, or when a man acts on behalf of God to speak for him, to prophesy, the man must have his literal head uncovered. And in like manner, he teaches that when a woman, a Christian woman, goes into the presence of God to pray, and when a Christian woman speaks on behalf of God, prophesying, she should have a covering on her head. Really simple kind of instruction. I I remember um, uh, a Christian girl years ago, known known to some of you, um, she was fairly rough and coarse. She said um, on one occasion, I don't know these girls who don't want to put a head covering on. You think God was asking them to be a martyr? (laughs) You probably know who it is now. (laughs) You know, um, there's, there's... are really, there are very, very few material, physical things that we're expected to do in Christianity. But one of them is that for men, I know it's pretty trendy for guys these days to wear a cap. You know, if, when you're praying, take it off. If you're speaking on behalf of the Lord, teaching Sunday school, whatever, take it off. A girl, when you're praying, put something on. When you're speaking on behalf of the Lord, wherever that might be, and, and we know from um, 1 Corinthians that that's not in the assembly. You're not going to be speaking then. But whether it's Sunday school teaching, whether it's in, in, um, in visiting an, an older sister, whether it's in speaking a word to, to anyone um, to bring the word of the Lord, make sure to put something on. Why? Because Christ is the head of every man and there's an order of headship. Now, I must hurry. Um, the head, um, the fourth is that he's the head over all things. That's Ephesians 1 verse 22. It says he's the head over all things to the assembly. It's only the assembly that recognises at the present time that he's head over all things. In the, in the future, it's going to be obvious to everybody. But at the present time, the assembly recognises it. Colossians 1 verse 18, he's called the head of the body. And this is what we were especially speaking about earlier. Ephesians 5 verse 23, he's called the head of the assembly. We know that the assembly and the body are one. But there are slightly different things being emphasised in those two passages that we don't have time for now. And then the verse we read in Colossians Colossians 2 verse 10 um, speaks of him as being the head of all principality and authority. That's the seventh one, isn't it? Is it seven? So that means there's eight. 
because the verse we read in Colossians 2 verse 19 doesn't add any extra description, which is not holding fast the head. And perhaps that's the greatest one of all. Here's one in the greatness of his glory. We can try and add some additional descriptions, head of the corner, head of the nations, head of this, head of that, but how exalted to think of him simply as being the head. The one who has preeminence, the one who directs by affection, and the one who provides nourishment to everyone who's connected with him.